Chapter 18 of Being a Boy by Charles Dudley Warner. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Mark Penfold. Chapter 18 Country Scenes. It is impossible to say at what age a New England country boy becomes conscious that his trouser legs are too short and is anxious about the part of his hair and the fit of his woman-made roundabout. These harrowing thoughts come to him later than to the city lad. At least a generation ago he served a long apprenticeship with nature only for a master, absolutely unconscious of the artificialities of life. But I do not think his early education was neglected and yet it is easy to underestimate the influences that, unconsciously to him, were expanding his mind and nursing in him heroic purposes. There was the lovely but narrow valley with its rapid mountain stream. There were the great hills which he climbed only to see other hills stretching away to a broken and tempting horizon. There were the rocky pastures and the wide sweeps of forest through which the winter tempests howled, upon which hung the haze of summer heat, over which the great shadows of summer clouds travelled. There were the clouds themselves, shouldering up above the peaks, hurrying across the narrow sky, the clouds out of which the wind came, and the lightning and the sudden dashes of rain. And there were days when the sky was ineffably blue and distant, a fathomless vault of heaven where the hen-hawk and the eagle poised on outstretched wings and watched for their prey. Can you say how these things fed the imagination of the boy who had few books and no contact with a great world? Do you think any city lad could have written Thanatopsis at eighteen? If you had seen John, in his short and roomy trousers and ill-used straw hat, picking his barefooted way over the rocks along the river-bank of a cool morning to see if an eel had got on, you would not have fancied that he lived in an ideal world, nor did he consciously. So far as he knew, he had no more sentiment than a jackknife. Although he loved Cynthia Rudd devotedly, and blushed scarlet one day when his cousin found a lock of Cynthia's flaming hair in the box where John kept his fish-hooks, spruce-gum, flag-root, tickets of standing at the head, gimlet, billet doux in blue ink, a vile liquid in a bottle to make fish-bite, and other precious possessions, yet Cynthia's society had no attractions for him comparable to a day's trout-fishing. She was, after all, only a single and a very undefined item in his general ideal world, and there was no harm in letting his imagination play about her illumined head. Since Cynthia had got religion and John had got nothing, his love was tempered with a little awe and a feeling of distance. He was not fickle, and yet I cannot say that he was not ready to construct a new romance in which Cynthia should be eliminated. Nothing was easier." Perhaps it was a luxurious travelling carriage, drawn by two splendid horses in plated harness, driven along the sandy road. There were a gentleman and a young lad on the front seat, and on the back seat a handsome pale lady with a little girl beside her. Behind, on the rack with the trunk, was a coloured boy, an imp out of a story-book. John was told that the black boy was a slave, and that the carriage was from Baltimore. Here was a chance for a romance. Slavery, beauty, wealth, haughtiness, especially on the part of the slender boy on the front seat, here was an opening into a vast realm. The high-stepping horses and the shining harness were enough to excite John's admiration, but these were nothing to the little girl. His eyes had never before fallen upon that kind of girl. He had hardly imagined that such a lovely creature could exist. 
was it the soft and dainty toilet was it the brown curls or the large laughing eyes or the delicate finely cut features or the charming little figure of this fairy-like person was this expression on her mobile face merely that of amusement at seeing a country boy then john hated her on the contrary did she see in him what john felt himself to be then he would go the world over to serve her in a moment he was self-conscious his trousers seemed to creep higher up his legs and he could feel his very ankles blush he hoped that she had not seen the other side of him for in fact the patches were not of the exact shade of the rest of the cloth the vision flashed by him in a moment but it left him with a resentful feeling perhaps that proud little girl would be sorry some day when he had become a general or written a book or kept a store to see him go away and marry another he almost made up his cruel mind on the instant that he would never marry her however bad she might feel and yet he couldn't get her out of his mind for days and days and when her image was present even cynthia in the singer's seat on sunday looked a little cheap and common poor cynthia long before john became a general or had his revenge on the baltimore girl she married a farmer and was the mother of children red-headed and when john saw her years after she looked tired and discouraged as one who has carried into womanhood none of the romance of her youth fishing and dreaming i think were the best amusements john had the middle pier of the long covered bridge over the river stood upon a great rock and this rock which was known as the swimming rock whence the boys on summer evenings dove into the deep pool by its side was a favorite spot with john when he could get an hour or two from the everlasting chores making his way out to it over the rocks at low water with his fish-pole there he was content to sit and observe the world and there he saw a great deal of life he always expected to catch the legendary trout which weighed two pounds and was believed to inhabit that pool he always did catch horned dace and shiners which he despised and sometimes he snared a monstrous sucker a foot and a half long but in the summer the sucker is a flabby fish and john was not thanked for bringing him home he liked however to lie with his face close to the water and watch the long fishes panting in the clear depths and occasionally he would drop a pebble near one to see how gracefully he would scud away with one wave of the tail into deeper water nothing fears the little brown boy the yellow bird slants his wings almost touches the deep water before him and then escapes away under the bridge to the east with a glint of sunshine on his back the fish-hawk comes down with a swoop dips one wing and his prey having darted under a stone is away again over the still hill high soaring on even poised pinions keeping an eye perhaps upon the great eagle which is sweeping the sky in widening circles but there is other life a wagon rumbles over the bridge and the farmer and his wife jogging along do not know that they have startled a lazy boy into a momentary fancy that a thunder shower is coming up john can see as he lies there on a still summer day with the fishes and the birds for company the road that comes down the left bank of the river a hot sandy well-travelled road hidden from view here and there by trees and brushes the chief point of interest however is an enormous sycamore tree by the roadside and in front of john's house the house is more than a century old and its timbers were hewed and squared by captain moses rice who lies in his grave on the hillside above it in the presence of the red man who killed him with arrow and tomahawk some time after his house was set in order the gigantic tree struck with a sort of leprosy like all its species appears much older and of course has its tradition 
they say that it grew from a green stake which the first land surveyor planted there for one of his points of sight john was reminded of it years after when he sat under the shade of the decrepit lime-tree in freeburg and was told that it was originally a twig which the breathless and bloody messenger carried in his hand when he dropped exhausted in the square with the word victory on his lips announcing thus the result of the glorious battle of morat where the swiss in fourteen seventy six defeated charles the bold under the broad but scanty shade of the great button-ball tree as it was called stood an old watering-trough with its half-decayed penstock and well-worn spout pouring forever cold sparkling water into the overflowing trough it is fed by a spring near by and the water is sweeter and colder than any in the known world unless it be the well zemzem as generations of people and horses which have drunk of it would testify if they could come back and if they could file along this road again what a procession there would be riding down the valley antiquated vehicles rusty wagons adorned with the invariable buffalo robe even in the hottest days lean and long-favored horses frisky colts drawing generation after generation the sober and pious saints that passed this way to meeting and to mill what a refreshment is that water-spout all day long there are pilgrims to it and john likes nothing better than to watch them here comes a gray horse drawing a buggy with two men cattle buyers probably out jumps a man down goes the check-rein what a good draught the nag takes here comes a long-stepping trotter in a sulky man in a brown linen coat and wide-awake hat dissolute horsey-looking man they turn up of course ah there is an establishment he knows well a sorrel horse and an old chaise the sorrel horse scents the water afar off and begins to turn up long before he reaches the trough thrusting out his nose in anticipation of the coot sensation no check to let down he plunges his nose in nearly to his eyes in his haste to get at it two maiden ladies unmistakably such though they appear neither anxious nor aimless within the scoop top smile benevolently on the sorrel back it is the deacon's horse a meeting-going nag with a sedate leisurely jog as he goes and these are two of the salt of the earth the brevet rank of the women who stand and wait going down to the village store to dicker there come two men in a hurry horse driven up smartly and pulled up short but as it is rising ground and the horse does not easily reach the water with the wagon pulling back the nervous man in the buggy hitches forward on his seat as if that would carry the wagon a little ahead next lumber wagon with load of boards horse wants to turn up and driver switches him and cries g'long and the horse reluctantly goes by turning his head wistfully towards the flowing spout ah here comes an equipage strange to these parts and john stands up to look an elegant carriage and two horses trunks strapped on behind gentleman and boy on front seat and two ladies on back seat city people the gentleman descends unchecks the horses wipes his brow takes a drink at the spout and looks around evidently remarking upon the lovely view as he swings his handkerchief in an explanatory manner judicious travellers john would like to know who they are perhaps they are from boston whence come all the wonderfully painted peddlers wagons drawn by six stalwart horses which the driver using no rein controls with his long whip and cheery voice if so great is the condescension of boston and john follows them with an undefined longing as they drive away toward the mountains of zoar here is a footman dusty and tired who comes with lagging steps he stops 
removes his hat, as he should to such a tree, puts his mouth to the spout, and takes a long pull at the lively water, and then he goes on, perhaps to Zoar, perhaps to a worse place. So they come and go all the summer afternoon, but the great event of the day is the passing down the valley of the majestic stagecoach, the vast yellow-bodied rattling vehicle." John can hear a mile off the shaking of chains, traces, and whiffle-trees, and the creaking of its leathern braces as the great bulk swings along piled high with trunks. It represents to John, somehow, authority, government, the right of way. The driver is an autocrat. Everybody must make way for the stagecoach. It almost satisfies the imagination, this royal vehicle. One can go in it to the confines of the world, to Boston and to Albany, there were other influences that I dare say contributed to the boy's education. I think his imagination was stimulated by a band of gypsies who used to come every summer and pitch a tent on a little roadside patch of green turf by the river bank not far from his house. It was shaded by elms and butternut trees, and a long spit of sand and pebbles ran out from it into the brawling stream. Probably they were not a very good kind of gypsy, although the story was that the men drank and beat the women. John didn't know much about drinking. His experience of it was confined to sweet cider. Yet he had already set himself up as a reformer, and joined the Cold Water Band. The object of this band was to walk in a procession under a banner that declared, So here we pledge perpetual hate to all that can intoxicate, and wear a badge with this legend, and above it the device of a well-curb with a long sweep. It kept John and all the little boys and girls from being drunkards till they were ten or eleven years of age, though perhaps a few of them died meantime from eating loaf-cake and pie and drinking ice-cold water at the celebrations of the band. The gypsy camp had a strange fascination for John, mingled of curiosity and fear. Nothing more alien could come into the New England life than this tatterdemalion band. It was hardly credible that there were actually people who lived outdoors, who slept in their covered wagon or under their tent and cooked in the open air. It was a visible romance transferred from foreign lands and the remote times of the story-books, and John took these city thieves, who were on their annual foray into the country, trading and stealing horses and robbing hen-roosts and cornfields, for the mysterious race who for thousands of years have done these same things in all lands by right of their pure blood and ancient lineage, John was afraid to approach the camp when any of the scowling and villainous men were lounging about, pipes in mouth, but he took more courage when only women and children were visible. The swarthy, black-haired women in dirty calico frocks were anything but attractive, but they spoke softly to the boy and told his fortune, and wheedled him into bringing them any amount of cucumbers and green corn in the course of the season. In front of the tent were planted in the ground three poles that met together at the top, whence depended a kettle. This was the kitchen, and it was sufficient. The fuel for the fire was the driftwood of the stream. John noted that it did not require to be sawed into stove-lengths, and in short that the chores about this establishment were reduced to the minimum. And an older person than John might envy the free life of these wanderers, who paid neither rent nor taxes, and yet enjoyed all the delights of nature. It seemed to the boy that affairs would go more smoothly in the world if everybody would live in this simple manner, nor did he then know, or ever after find out, why it is that the world permits only wicked people to be bohemians. The End of Chapter 18 Recording by Mark Penfold